until eventually we get something that's effectively broken and then they can just sell off the carcass and, and walk away or declare bankruptcy. Right. Which I always find amusing because apparently for Megacorp's bankruptcy doesn't mean the same thing for as it does for the rest of us. So <laughs> Right. Different codes for different bankruptcy codes. Yeah. Welcome to the Skippy and Fanny Show. This is our live show, SNF Clacks. I'm Sean. And I'm Trish. And on today's show, uh, we'll be talking about some of our thoughts on the state of short fiction because some big news just kind of dropped, and also the terrible world of private equity mm-hmm. acquiring things that people like. So there you go. Uh, so that's what we're going to cover. Uh, we'll <laughs> offer some of our thoughts on those things. Uh, we're not experts, but we have our own opinions and views. Uh, so I'm very curious to hear what Trish thinks. And uh, I'm curious to hear what I will come up with when I'm asked questions. <clears throat> so, Well, as always, please share your comments with us about this and past episodes at skiffyandfanny.com slash listener suggestions. Some of your questions might get discussed right here on SNF Clacks next time, or this time if we if you talk to us in chat, or our Speculative Dispatch show. Yeah, which is on our Patreon, which you can get for as little as $1 per month, or your firstborn child, whichever. <laughs> so, okay, so let's talk about the first big thing, which um, I think this week, or end of last week, uh, the whole deal with Amazon's uh, periodical service shutdown, mm-hmm. which naturally means that basically half of all science fiction magazines of note lost their primary method of distribution. Uh, now, some of them have other methods. Uh, so like Clark's World does have its own internal system for delivery, and some of them have found alternatives. But for the most part, Amazon was it. Uh, and I think, I imagine, Trish, you've also noticed over the years, but we've had a variety of uh, magazine closures Cosmas, I think, just announced their closure. I think an, another one just announced its closure, and I can't remember which one, just this past week. Uh, and over the years, we've seen magazines come and go pretty quickly um, for a variety of reasons, from not having enough funding to being run primarily by volunteers who get tired and need to go do other things, mm-hmm. which is also technically also a funding problem, um, and so on and so forth. So... Uh, things are a bit chaotic for science fiction, uh, short fiction, uh, because uh, it's kind of an unstable market right now, and basically nobody makes a living in it. Mm-hmm. I don't know what else to say. It's, sad. it's so sad. Yeah, it's uh, it's a tough time for a lot of people. Um, <clears throat> uh, it's uh, starting a small magazine or a small press or anything like that just takes an enormous amount of time and dedication and uh, focus and uh, that's that's all really hard and uh, uh, it's a lot easier to do if you have money and backing um, uh, and it's much uh, the, the problem is that uh, uh, so many people 
relied on Amazon because it was very easy for distribution for a long time. Just get your thing yeah. through Amazon and then it'll be delivered to your inbox. Um, but uh, uh, what with, with Amazon canceling the easy automatic subscriptions... Now, I think they still do a lot of magazines through Kindle Unlimited if they want, but that depends on if the person clicks to open the particular magazine and reads a certain percentage of the pages before you get any credit at all. And even if you do get credit, I, I, I'm pretty sure you get less money per publication anyway. You do. Um. So uh, uh, there are some alternatives, which unfortunately... Uh, due to computer problems, I did not have time to look up the links, but I know that there are there are a number of other uh, get your get your library here. I mean, get your subscriptions here. Alternatives springing up on the net, um, and uh, I'm sorry I didn't have time to hunt up the links before we started. But um, there are alternatives, but of course also uh, you can subscribe directly to most of these uh, venues. You just have more to keep track of than you used to when it was just Kindle uh, or just yeah. Amazon. So, um, I mean, one could hope that eventually this would turn to good with people being kind of pushed towards more diversity rather than just relying on Amazon. Uh, but it's very inconvenient right now, especially for, you know, the major, the, the, well, major and minor magazines. All, you know, I've seen so many pleas from um, uh, uh, Apex and Clark's World and, uh, uh, and Kenny's had their Kickstarter and everybody else saying, you know, uh, you're going to be automatically unsubscribed to us. So please just subscribe directly. And yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's irritating and confusing, but I guess we all just have to make our own spreadsheets or, or docs and uh, keep track of things manually instead of having Big Amazon do it for us. This is kind of... I, it made me wonder what's going to happen, because I know that everybody's scrambling to get those extra subscribers, and you know maybe they some of the magazines manage to get them, but I feel like... Any magazine that relies to some degree on subscriptions right now is in the same trouble that all the magazines that rely on like Patreon supporters and any other kind of delivery of funds beyond, you know, the the publication side of things. Uh, they're all having the same problem, which is they just don't have enough people reading them, giving them money. I mean, this is the problem of all online free stuff. That's why I get really annoyed when people just say everything should be free. And it's like, cool, but like then nobody makes any sort of living creating anything because they'll be like, oh, but you'll just get donations. Sure, like one micro percent of the whole. And that's not necessarily enough to guarantee that the person's going to be able to continue to, to eat. Or in the case of magazines, continue to pay editors or afford the, the cost to buy the stories or any of those combinations. So my concern is that we're going to see a contraction. I mean, the internet kind of opened it up. There weren't really that many about 20 years ago. There weren't quite as many known magazines of science fiction and fantasy um, about 20 or so years ago. Um, I mean, they, they existed, but like I remember when I was interested in submitting fiction for the first time, like buying when those writers 
guidebooks and looking through. Um, and they weren't exactly terribly great at getting everybody. And the internet wasn't very effective at providing databases. Now we have, you know, dozens and dozens of fairly high paying markets or high paying based on the way this market is. But yet, I don't know that they're all going to survive because the readership doesn't appear to have increased substantially for short fiction, which is a concern. And I don't know what the solution to that is. I mean, for heaven's sake, I'm, I'm a teacher. Most of what we teach is short fiction. So I, I don't know what it is. Is it just that it, I guess the short story is not considered sexy. <laughs> so it's just harder to sell. But yeah, so I don't know. I, I That's my concern. We're going to have a contraction. And if we do... Is that going to be good for our field? Not really. Mm -mm. In in many ways, it's probably going to be bad. Sorry to be a downer. <laughs> that's one thing that's going on. Um, another, of course, is uh, venture. Well, sorry, private equity firms, uh, to wit, especially KKR, uh, taking over a significant chunk of publishing. Three years ago, uh, KKR, which is the same company that the movie Barbarians at the Gate was about. The same company that uh, took over Toys R Us and gutted it. Um, uh, you know, you can certainly find lots of stories talking about their business practices being to take over a company and gut it in the guise of investing. You know, they'll take out big loans uh, to improve the company and somehow a lot of those loans go to the uh, investor salaries and stuff like that. Anyway, um, uh, they took over uh, Simon & Schuster in August. And the fallout from that remains to be seen, but it's unlikely to be great for diversity of books. Uh, for, you know, they're probably going to, hi to lay off a bunch of people, and the first people to go will be new hires and people like, you know, diversity uh, uh, editors and things like that. So it's um, almost sure to uh, have a bad effect. Let's see, in the chat, Configuration Queen, does Simon & Schuster own Barnes & Noble? I really don't know. I don't think so. Not to my knowledge. Um, Barnes & Noble's got its own thing, which we kind of talked about, I think, in the last clacks that they they got purchased out by somebody or taken over by somebody who seems to actually give a crap about books so right yeah right they've been making good strides at uh letting a little more control go back to the local branches so that they can pick books that their readers have expressed interest in uh they barnes and noble at least right now seems to be on a on a good trend um but i don't know about who owns them? KKR took over Overdrive, uh, which is the parent company of Libby, um, which yeah. is the library uh, app, um, the major rival to Hoopla. Uh, they took that over in 2020, and, you know, Libby is still doing fine for now, but articles I've read about KKR say their basic cycle is usually about five years before they, you know suck a company dry and leave. So we'll see what happens with that. The main thing that I've seen about complaints about changes with Libby uh, is that it's now, um, you can't 
directly request your library to get a book anymore. You can only hit a thing that says, notify me if this becomes available. And some right. libraries look at that and some don't. So uh, we'll see where that goes. Yeah, and this, this topic was brought to us by Andrea, who's one of our Patreon supporters. Mm-hmm. And this is, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes for this, but there is an article on a Substack newsletter which talks about the, this concept that I've mentioned before, Cory Doctorow's concept of the institutification of technologies mm-hmm. or technology services. And I think this, while we're being a little bit Debbie Downer here or, or whatever the, what's the gender neutral of Debbie Downer? What's the opposite of that? Uh... The, the, the Sammy Satters, because at least Sammy can be both male and female. Sure. I, sure. Okay. Uh. <laughs> Whatever the, yeah, but, um. Chris Catastrophe says. The Chris Catastrophe, there we go. Queen. Yeah, that works. Yeah. Um, but the, the reason I bring that up, and I'll put it in the show notes again, is, uh, this, the Substack's pointing out that because this private equity firm, like many firms, and it is the same one that Trisha rightly pointed out, is the one that has been involved in the destruction of other businesses that more or less people like. Uh, the concern is that here's a service that is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's providing a way to get electronic books uh, through your library with a way of submitting information. Overdrive at one point even had its own diversity audit system. So if you had any organization using Overdrive, you could go in there and basically have its system do an audit of the books that you you picked in your organization like at the library and it can make suggestions to you based on you know oh you have a critical gap here maybe you should add some text here which is a really cool idea mm-hmm. and also is using data etc in a very fun way but those services don't necessarily have very blatant large profit margins or at least perceived to not have them and so what is it that we get is we might get them cutting services down or reducing the effectiveness of services, pulling more and more away and extracting as much out by reducing their overhead until eventually we get something that's effectively broken and then they can just sell off the carcass and and walk away or declare bankruptcy. Right. Which I always find amusing because apparently for megacorps, bankruptcy doesn't mean the same thing for as it does for the rest of us. So <laughs> right, different codes for different bankruptcy codes. Yeah, <sighs> um, yeah. Uh, configuration Queen points out uh, they f- fill out forms on a library website to request particular books, <clears throat> and you can do that with most libraries, at least most modern library systems. Uh, but it just adds another step uh, in the way that, you know, every step some people drop out of and just say, oh, sorry, brilliant new author, your li- my library doesn't have your book, and so I will just read another uh, reinterpretation of Highline or something. <laughs> Tanya Moore is asking... How would you say the upsurge of small independent presses fits into this big picture? Well, uh, naturally, I think it's great that a whole lot of different presses uh, have come into being in the last 10, 15 years or so. And a lot of them are coming into being specifically to foster big, uh, sorry, uh, 
diverse vo- voices, uh, underrepresented voices in publishing, precisely because the big publishing houses, the big five or whatever, four or whatever it is now, um, tend to play it safe according to their lights, which means, you know, not buying people who look the least bit non-mainstream. Uh, but, uh, of course, the small f- presses that way are able to find niches where they can claw out a living, at least for a while, because the big presses aren't doing that. Now, there have been more pushes toward diversity um, at some of, or at least lip service (laughs) toward diversity at the uh, bigger presses. Um, But uh, uh, if we're going, if we're about to head back into a period of contractions and uh, cost cutting, that's extremely unlikely to endure. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about the biggest problem small presses are going to have is, I mean, actually, it's not, a, it, I guess it's not as big a problem as I'm thinking in my head, because the whole thing with why people want to go with the big presses is that's where more of the money is, but that's not necessarily totally true anymore. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and so I wonder if that opens up that because small presses are not universally, but tend to be more forgiving for strangeness and oddities and unusual mm-hmm. types of storytelling. Right. That what well, ends a lot up happening of the smaller is, yeah. presses were founded specifically in, in order to help. Yeah, like Small Beer Pressed, which tends towards a somewhat more literary, fabulist fiction rather than just straight genre. Right, or Queen of Swords, which uh, uh, really likes uh, publishing LGBTQ uh, when it can, um, and uh, obviously, you know, that's kind of part of their mission. Um, yeah, so, uh, yes, Configuration Queen points out her their local library often has print selections that differ from e-audio, uh, from e-books and audio selections. Um, sure. And, uh, it's probably the same people in charge of purchasing, but they may see different segments of their users, uh, focusing more one way or another. That's a good, that's a good point. Allocating the resources to where they'd be most effective. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is actually the benefit of having these database systems anyway. You can get lots of data about usage and what people read and what categories they're in, Mm -hmm. which... I suppose is what libraries already do, but can be somewhat hard at a library because of the sheer volume of types of content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I see also that Configuration Queen got a nook. Yeah, I ended up getting a Kindle recently, and the the reason I got the Kindle was just I I have an old nook. I have like a second generation nook, uh, and I just needed I just needed a new new machine that I could afford to buy that would allow me to read when I travel, but I'm not going to lie. I I I hemmed and hawed about whether to buy it <laughs> just because I'm not a big fan of Amazon's business practices even right. if I recognize that Amazon in some ways is very effective and useful for a lot of people, which I know Jen and I have had conversations about that part of the reason these these systems become favored so much is because of how accessible their services have become by comparison to everything else. You know, ironically, killing off the things that would make those things accessible in places where only Amazon now exists 
sort of like my old small town, which used to have a fantastic local hardware store, uh, you know, with like people who'd been there for like 30 years and could, you know, name off some weird tool just by some odd description you had of what it does. You know, those people basically don't exist anymore because all the big companies and the big mega stores where basically nobody knows anything about anything in there came into town and they could sell at lower prices. So, yeah, which is a whole other problem. But, yeah, so there's that. Um, and I know that Tanya is saying in chat here that uh, that she has an Android tablet um, and just uses different apps, which is also an option that you can do. You can just choose the app you prefer, which is a cool there's also places like Weightless Books and stuff that... Weightless Books, that's the one I was trying to think of for the magazines. Yeah, they're great for uh, magazines, also small press uh, ebook sales and independent stuff. Um, most of the big publishers don't sell there because they don't really need... Frankly, they just really don't need to. But a lot of smaller folks sell there and then lots of magazines, so you can do that too. And then there's... Uh, configuration queen in chat says libro.fm for audiobooks is another alternative to um, uh, audible for folks that want that there are a couple of audiobook alternatives i think libro.fm is the best one yeah it's really hard for those uh, companies to get any traction though because audible is such a behemoth and it often insists on exclusive contracts so, obviously, you know, that makes it really hard to compete. Well, and it, and I know that in, there are a number of authors who, you know, I'm sure they'd be, they would love it if their stuff was available basically everywhere and everywhere. But I know some that they basically were offered, you know, Audible contacted their, you know, agent and was like, hey, we've got $10,000. Do they want to write one just, just for our Audible program? And it's not available anywhere else. It's like, well... If you're a working writer, do you turn down $10,000? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that you can justify turning it down because you're not going to make it anywhere else, which is sad, but true. That's kind of where we're at. I mean, we need to start thinking, I think, communally about how do we how do we actually support the industry? Meaning, so like, because it seems absurd to me that, you know, you work 30 hours a week, maybe more, on a magazine you know, as an editor or whatever, you know, getting everything ready and getting everything released. But you can have that magazine. It can be considered a pro mag in terms of its sale, but yet nobody makes a living. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, how is that? Why Why is our industry just sort of let that happen? I don't understand. Like, are we just not going to talk about the fact that, I mean, short fiction was never really the thing you made a living on. But people could work in short fiction as editors, et cetera, and they could make okay uh, as yeah, editors. I think, I think you could make a living in short fiction in the 30s and 40s, maybe even the 50s. After that, it was more get your foot in on in the door right. on short fiction, and then someday, you know, my child, you'll be able to write a full-length novel and sell it to a publishing house and right. make a living off that. But these days, you know, even mid-list book writers uh, have a very, very hard time scratching out a living just from just from writing. And that's, I mean, and then if you think of it from the other side, right, the editors, I mean, mm -hmm. that's also affecting them too. Oh, you know, sure. Because very few, I, I can't think of many magazines where the editor slash publisher, because they're sometimes the same person. Mm -hmm. uh, I, don't, I don't know that, are there any where they actually are making, that's their primary income? I don't think mm -hmm. so. 
Maybe Clark's World, technically. Maybe. Maybe. I I don't know. But um, I don't even think Clark's World's making a living specifically just from that. Yeah, I know that's not the case for Uncanny. Um, yeah, because they have jobs. Yeah, uh, certainly the people at uh, the escape artist's family have, you know, yeah. other jobs or, or hustles. Um, side hustles. <laughs> as many side hustles as it takes to fill up your your uh, your life, really. Do the editors of The Big Three make a living, you think? I don't think they do. I have no idea. Sorry. I mean, I'd be genuinely surprised given what their circulation numbers are. But again, like this is and then it, even still, like if it's just those three, that's just speaks to the problem of the whole place. I, I see in chat configuration queen contributing to a bunch of Patreons, um, especially during the pandemic. Um, but that, of course, correctly pointed out, doesn't work for everything uh, and also not for everyone, because if you are outside the U.S., it can sometimes be difficult, depending where you are, to even right. use Patreon. Um, mm -hmm. It's also, I, I'll be honest, it, it's, unless you're really, really big, uh, it, it's it's not reliable, which is the biggest problem. So, like, the really big folks that make shows and so on, they're making thousands and thousands on a mm -hmm. Patreon. But they don't rely on Patreon as their sole income. They're using sponsorships, etc., and advertising dollars as as the way to bring in that income. Uh, Patreon is sort of like the extra income that they pull in, that they calculate into their business uh, expenses, but it's not the place that they rely on. And it's just because the percentage of people that are avid consumers of whatever it is you produce, that percentage that will support you on Patreon is a very small percentage. Yeah, I think, um, I think it's something like 1% of... Uh... Listeners to a show, on average, are actual supporters, financial supporters, and I think that's pretty close to what it is for public radio and public TV stations as to how many people make contributions. Um, it's you know it's the case where you know if if they could get it up from to you know to from one percent to two percent or from three to four or whatever it is makes huge, huge differences in their budgets and the people that they can have on salary instead of volunteering and stuff. So, um, I mean, anyone, anyone who's listening to this <laughs> or watching it probably already gives what they can. Um, and it's, it, so, you know, I don't know that we're really needing to convert anyone in the audience to support publications but uh we need well, to not out live how... not not live certainly not live. but if you're at home right now you bastard <laughs> give me your money <laughs> right um <laughs> I, I, I mean if you can that's nice but yeah yeah i mean some people really can't um yeah and then the uh what they can do is put out the word um you know tell their friends to listen to the show uh, yeah. Tell their tell their enemies. Tell social media. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is part of why, like, with um, with any sort of audio show, like like w what we do, or you know, any other show, you know, you'll hear people say, "Well, why do they have so much advertising?" And it's like, because that's the reliable income. Mm -hmm. Once you get up to that level where you can start charging for adverts, like that's you know, this month I'm getting X dollars from this company. 
and I'm getting X dollars next month from that company, etc. Whereas with, you know, with listener support, it it's not like an insult on listeners. It's just that it's not, there's, there's no like magic button where I can be inside your head to know if this is the month you'll support. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. people and people, of course, you know, they, they like, if you have a bad month, maybe you lose your job or something like, well, I mean, we can't control that. Whereas with a company, you know, the chance that a company selling, uh, what is the Casper beds? Is that the big one that, <laughs> that everyone does? That was an does? old one. I don't think it, they do that much anymore. But, okay. you know, I still on lots of podcasts hear uh, advertisements <laughs> for, um, you know, food delivery services. Hello yeah, HelloFresh was whatever. big for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and of course, you know, that company, unless like its business practices are terrible, it, it's unlikely to disappear for a while. So it's more reliable income stream. So I think every podcaster, though, who's making a living podcasting would prefer to never have to do advertising because they have to deal with contracts. It affects the content that they produce, Mm -hmm. you know, all of that. Anytime advertisement gets involved, like you, you are doing a give and take unless you're Elon Musk. And then I guess you just don't care. And then you're surprised when advertisers don't like you anymore. (laughs) Um, But there's a give and take, you know, like they're going to want to know when are you going to place the ad spot? Um, how are you going to present it? What is the content around it? Are you a show that does potentially offensive content? Well, we need to know what that is because we, you know, some brands don't really care if, if you associate with offensive content, but others might. You know, if it's an alcohol brand, there may be like legal restrictions. So, like, I know that we joke all the time about the alcohol we consume and the food and stuff, but like, we do, I literally am like following Twitch rules when I'm saying, you know, please drink responsibly. We are responsible drinkers, even though we're having a good time, but we're not encouraging like bad drinking behavior because there's legal reasons, there's Twitch reasons, and then there's moral reasons. So like all that comes into that as soon as that gets in there. So I think that like, you know, there there was a time and and I guess they don't really do it anymore in publishing when they used to put advertising in books and magazines, magazines still Mm do. Um, Yeah, you'd see in the middle of a Louis L'Amour Western, you'd see uh, uh, fold out thing for you know like uh, marble uh, or something plates that have been painted with uh, scenic vistas or whatever. Aww, um, <laughs> that's kind of cute. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, you know, good for them for finding a way to make a revenue stream. But <laughs> that's interesting. Like, why don't we do advertising in in novels? Like, we do in magazines to some degree. Although most of the advertising in magazines is books and services for writers and things like that was trying to see if I had a magazine. I don't have one easily accessible right now, but I wonder like what, what stopped the publishing of uh, like novels with, with, uh, with advertising in it? Like, why did that stop? Yeah, I really don't know. Um, yeah, I can't think of it. I don't think I've seen a book like that. That's been published since certainly since the eighties. I, you know, it's it's all yeah. old books that I'm thinking of that had like the cardstock yeah. uh, inserts. Um, Do you think it was Harlan Ellison? Do you think he did it? <laughs> Have I told you the story uh, about Harlan Ellison and mid book insert ads? Okay, no. so there is a possibly apocryphal story of Harlan Ellison. I want to be clear. I don't know if this story is true. He's dead, so I suppose he can't sue me, but. Uh, this is the story as I recall it. So Harlan Ellison had in his contract that there would be no smoking ads in his books. And lo and behold, his publisher published a book with a smoking ad in it. Naturally, 
given it's in his contract, he got mad. And you know Harlan Ellison, because everybody <laughs> who's heard that name knows, right? Uh, he's not the kind of person to just take that sitting down. So he, I guess, called his editor and, like, chewed him out and demanded he do something. And the editor was like, we're not really going to do that and all these kinds of stuff. So I guess back then... You could send posts to somebody and they would pay when they received the post because it was a publisher. They'd receive manuscripts and books and all that. So you just started sending bricks, which are not cheap to send, wasting money. And, you know, kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it until they they like, called him and he was like, are you going to do anything? And they the publisher basically said no. So I guess one time he decided, like, I'm going to get my revenge. And so he, he found like a piece of roadkill stuck it in a box, but sent it so it would arrive at the end of the day so it wouldn't get checked, so it would sit over the weekend and basically rot in the offices. And, of course, it did. And then after that, according to this apocryphal story, uh, the the publisher pulled the books and removed the, uh, removed the ads. He may or may not have given the editor uh, a panic attack and a mental breakdown as a consequence of this. So... Maybe Harlan Ellison's the reason they don't do advertising anymore. <laughs> well, he could be an astoundingly petty and vindictive person. He had some good qualities too, but uh, very good writer. Yeah, uh, not um, not necessarily the kind of person that uh, I think was great dinner conversation. <laughs> then again, I didn't know the man, so maybe he was really delightful. Who knows? Uh, Tanya Moore has a theory, though. A uh, theory mm-hmm. is that. Short-lived nature of advertising doesn't really fly in books where print runs are kind of permanent-ish. That's a good point. You'd want a brand that is likely to stick around and Mm -hmm. probably at those margins, if it's a brand that can stick around, does it really need to be advertising in a book? I mean, books don't sell that much. I mean, Stephen King does, but like Stephen King's going to want a cut of that money. (laughs) Yeah, sure. CQ brings up the relevant point that books used to have much longer lives in bookstores, too. Um, So, right, uh, uh, a lot of bookstores used to carry, like, the entire print run of bunches of different authors. And so, you know, you could just go there and you like one book, you pick up the next in the series uh, in two weeks or so, whenever you're back at the bookstore. And now there is very much more emphasis on churn in, well, in the physical bookstores that are still around. Um, And so, yeah, often you'll have the first book and the last book in a series, or maybe the last two books in a series, but if you want anything else, you'll have to go somewhere else to get it. Um, Yeah. So, well, and there's fewer physical bookstores, too, right. overall, that mm-hmm. aren't just chains anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And even still, not really, because a lot of Barnes & Nobles have at one point closed down. So there's that factor, too. There's just fewer places where people are buying physical books. So you probably have less data to pull from for mm-hmm. who, who is the likely reader here. You know, there's probably just a lot of factors. I, I, I imagine it mostly comes down to money. It's just the profit, uh, the profit for the, the, the advertisers just too low. Yeah. It is. I mean, I know that we, we talk like lament the decline of reading in American culture, but I mean, it is an actual issue. The percentage of people who read books hasn't really dramatically changed for the better mm-hmm. in my well, lifetime, arguably has gotten worse, except in certain periods, like during COVID people read a little bit more. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, it's, um, uh, people's lifestyles have changed a lot. I used to, well, I, I still do love reading books, but, you know, there are some days when I don't pick up a book or, or, or a yeah. reader or anything at all because I'm so busy with other things. Part of that does go to social media. I mean, I didn't do social media until what 15 years ago or something like that and you know now now i'm checking blue sky and mastodon and uh yeah <laughs> uh you know there's always more interesting people to follow but those are all fragmented conversations um there's something really different reading conversations online versus picking up a book uh whether physical or electronic and just focusing on that for a couple of hours at a time, you know, really being in dialogue with one person, one train of thought, uh, even though the book has multiple POVs or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a t totally different headspace, I think. Yeah. Um, I wonder if some part of that is too, that because so much of social media or so much of fandom now is also basically on social media and there's just a lot of it. It's it's a it's not like you know before when you would just read the the like letters column, or maybe a little bit later when people had internet they'd read their Usenet messages and then they would they'd be mm -hmm. done in the morning. Right, right now it's like but something happened at one o'clock and at two o'clock and at three o'clock and at three o four and three o seven. Like there's just so much conversation happening all the time. Yeah, you and... really can just spend all day. Reading yeah. and scrolling through social media and refreshing and doing it again. Um, yeah, the some would call that the doom scroll, but it doesn't always have to be a doom. It can just be also I want to keep up with all the conversation. Uh, mm -hmm. Paul's in chat right now. Speaking of of the devil himself, who is always on social media. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm teasing you, Paul. Ubiquitous in social yeah. media. Has, he is has... ubiquitous. <laughs> he is everywhere, as Prince J Justin with a V. Uh, and he does ask, how do you think engaging with different lengths? length works is different is engagement with a short story different than an epic fantasy series oh, i think that's yes i think that's mm -hmm. there's probably multiple ways that's different yeah one is also just a time i would think like time commitment's the most obvious one mm -hmm. i mean i can finish you know i have right now on my phone like uh, a, a chrome window with like 13 different short stories from a bunch of different magazines open and i could probably mm -hmm. finish all 13 of those you know, in the next couple of hours, if I just went and read, whereas an epic fantasy, depending on how epic it is, I might be reading that till next week. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, these days, um, I am much, much less apt to check out a big book, uh, a thick book from the library, just because I know it's going to take me a while to get to it, and it's going to take me a, a long time to finish it. Um, I mean. <laughs> I try to get, I'm trying to get out of the habit of having, you know, 12 library books stacked up and, you know, uh, instead reading um, social media or whatever, uh, or listening to a podcast or an audiobook or whatever. I mean, it's, it's, it can be pretty easy to overwhelm yourself with all the choices, but, uh, but yeah, um, I, unless it's a reader, unless it's a writer that I already know and trust to keep a coherent story together for a long time and not annoy me by uh, 
a stupid surprise ending that they do just for the jollies of a twist or or whatever you know mm. um i i am very unlikely to pick up a big thick book by a writer who's unknown to me whereas yeah. with a short story or even a novella it's a much lighter time investment um and time is precious <laughs> yeah so tanya raises a thing that i thought was related to this that um it you know the tanya says it seems like a a contradiction because with people being so busy and like having commutes and all these kinds of things and not necessarily have a lot of free time all collected together to read a very long book you think a short story would be like this would be the perfect era for the short story and you would because there have been a number of apps that have tried to like mm -hmm. deliver you a short story a day or something a ton and they some yeah. of them still exist and yeah. sunday yeah, morning transport or whatever uh, various places like that yeah, yeah, and, uh, you know, specific magazines that do that as well. And the thing that I've noticed is pretty much none of the short story apps, like an app that's just meant to deliver short stories to you, like none of them got any real traction culturally. You know, and I don't know if that's because of design or if it's just they could not reach people to get them interested. And this is more this probably speaks to a much broader cultural problem but you know the the frequency with which i have students who will tell me you know that they don't like to read at all not that like they just don't read cuz they're just too busy which is a different thing um or like i'm i'm right now i'm only reading for classes because i just don't really have a lot of free time mm -hmm. outside which i can kind yeah, of that's understand different. Mm -hmm. yeah they'll just say outright i don't like to read at all i, I haven't read a book like ever you know, that kind of thing. I mean, not literally ever, but they, yeah. they mean basically they never read books. Never that, for pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, never for pleasure. And it's, it's always a surprise to me because I, I get more of that now than I used to, maybe about five or six years ago, a little bit more of it now than I used to. Mm -hmm. um, and I just find that very surprising because like it somewhere along the, the train, they got in their minds somewhere in there that reading a was not something worth doing, wasn't fun to do, wasn't interesting to do, all of these different reasons. Um, and they never pause to think that you can just read. You don't have to read for school. You don't have to read for anyone else other than yourself. And like there are tons of books that every single one of these kids probably would find very interesting that are just on subjects they care about. Like for heaven's sakes, there's probably a great book about duck hunting somewhere out there. And I've got tons of students who go go fowl hunting. You know, I bet you they'd find they'd find it so fascinating, but they just have this idea that like a book is this, it's this thing that's not there doesn't have any purpose. It does, it's that thing that people used to do, and it's this old entity that doesn't exist. And I don't know, I it just seems really somewhat sad because you would think that with our digital technology, our access, right? No one has to hold a big book. No one, I mean, heaven's sake, you don't even have to like hold a book with a cover that might be somewhat embarrassing to hold. You can just have it on your phone or whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we don't have that. And I, it's so strange. I mean, even the thriller is designed for that. Like the, the whole function of a modern commercial thriller is those chapters, like you can read one or two or three chapters in an average commute. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're like three or four page long chapters. Yeah. I'm not saying they're good. Some of them are good, but don't talk to me about Patterson though. <laughs> made me sad um let me swing back to the publishing thing um <clears throat> recently in maryland uh the state of maryland lost a lawsuit 
against, I forget which publisher, but uh, anyway, um, the publisher argument that apparently succeeded was that Maryland was just too big and uh, it was unfair for Maryland libraries to collectively bargain on prices for books and ebooks. And apparently the court agreed and struck it down, and so now they're all on their own again, all the different county library systems. Whereas before, the county library systems were bargaining as one Maryland group of library purchaser, book purchasers. And apparently, you know, the fact that there are only four big publishers, <laughs> uh, that's less of a monopolistic thing than Maryland libraries banding together. Um, so... Uh, gosh, yeah, monopolies. We could talk about mono book publishing monopolies for a long time. Well, I don't we know could, if you, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you saw, Sean, um, a thing that came out yesterday from um, Bill Willingham, uh, who is the creator of the Fables comic books, uh, graphic novels. Um, he made a statement, he released a statement saying... I hereby release all my stuff into the public domain, all my intellectual property into the public domain because Disney has been doing its best to... You mean DC? Sorry, DC, DC, not Disney. DC, yes, right. Um, has been doing its best to, you know, make him sign new contracts that uh, make him basically just a work for hire guy on the own on the stuff that he created, and you know they've been uh, nickel and diming him for you know many years on money that he should have been earning out of stuff, um, and so he said, you know. Uh, it's all public domain now. Now, a lot of other people are saying public domain doesn't really work like that. And the most convincing thing I've seen is that, you know, uh, Willingham may believe that about releasing stuff into the public domain. You know, he's saying not the stuff, you know, the comics themselves and the, uh, the game by Telltale Games and stuff like that. You, those are still... Those still belong to DC, but like the characters, he says, uh, are are free for anybody to play with. Now, of course, I mean the characters are based on public domain stuff anyway, like uh, Snow White and the Big Bad Wolf and uh, various other other things. And then there were story elements that Willingham brought into the uh, series. Right. Um, but you know, e even if even if he can't really do it because everyone would be too scared to publish something and then have a lawsuit from DC. Uh, basically, it's, it's seen as some, you know, some people are saying, well, he's just doing this to muddy the waters and make his property, you know, his creation unprofitable for DC just to, as a way to stick his finger in DC's eyes after they've been unfair to him so long. That's, I mean, it's very interesting, but it also speaks to problems in the publishing industry for comics, uh, which it kind of been talking about it for like decades now. Um, DC, like the whole reason Image originally existed was to have creator-owned comics because mm -hmm. people got really tired of basically being exploited by the big two, basically. Right. And that still but occurs. And I've heard people say that, you know, Image itself. Also bad. 
became <laughs> yeah. a creator exploiter. So yep. yeah, it's very hard. Um, it's it's frustrating because so much of this industry, it, you know, whether it's comics or books or whatever, you know, there's people at the top just raking in all these these profits, uh, and the people who actually make the work that's the thing mm-hmm. from which profit is coming from often are the most screwed. I mean, I think people would be fine writing comics for DC and Marvel that those two companies basically own the rights to if they were being paid very, you know, well, handsomely up front, mm-hmm. you know, or if they were being given long-term contracts that they could rely on, you know, right. or, you know, having staff writers and staff artists. Mm-hmm. But it just doesn't seem like those industries really want to do that because they want to extract as much wealth as they can out of the creative class, which is... I don't know that that's going to last for terribly much longer. I mean, Marvel's already basically incomprehensible as a as a model. <laughs> um, DC, I think, gets away with it a little bit more just because DC mostly has pretty high quality work. But I I feel like the more that we start decentralizing uh, comics in particular, where people can mm-hmm. just go to Kickstarter and Kickstarter a comic book, um, or start it like a little small micro press that. They can make more profit off of each individual copy. You know, the power that these other companies will have just sort of decrease. I mean, Marvel and DC, their biggest draw is just they have identifiable characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't wait till Superman goes in the public domain. Because <laughs> I am drawing my my favorite version of Superman ever. Which is this murder man. He just runs around killing everybody with his laser eyes and saying, I am the ruler of the world. Because I have to be interesting, because Superman's boring. Superman is not boring. Um, it's the most and, boring. Uh, it's it's only it done if only if it's done badly is Superman boring. And I saw a really interesting thread the other day about uh, how you know people who turn Superman all edgy and and uh, evil are kind of missing the point that good Superman is a subversion. Uh, itself, because you have this person with all this power, and for most of the world history, people with a lot of power have abused people with it. You know, world world leaders and world rulers have generally been terrible. Um, and so uh, uh, here's a guy who has all this power, and he chooses to go- do good. And you can tell a lot of really interesting stories um, about, you know, trying to do good and failing. um, Or how do you choose which uh, thing to spend your time on to help people with. Sure. Um, Cory Doctorow wrote a really interesting story a couple years ago that I can't remember the title of. But basically, he never named Superman, but it obviously was Superman. Mm trying to fight against uh, uh, racist cops beating beating black people and uh, tr- tried very hard to work against the system. And, you know, his friend, the billionaire crime fighter, who was the obvious Batman analog, basically counseled him to give in because you can't fight the system. And... Uh, uh, the um oh what was it the uh one one of the uh stories this year a Hugo nominee um uh when you find yourself addressing God use the familiar 
something. Um, that is also about a super character who is trying to change uh, change uh, society for the better and finding getting a hell of a lot of pushback from stuff. There's also a movie that came out that I think James Gunn produced called Brightburn, which I think if I recall the premise, I've not seen it, so I don't know if it's any good. The premise is that it's basically Superman, but as a child, mm-hmm. but it's like it deals with the, the more darker picture of what happens when a child with that kind of power and ability, uh, you know, is bullied and then snaps uh, because horrible thing people do horrible things and. Uh, you know, you now you have this superpowered character who does not value other people's lives and is willing mm-hmm. to just cut people in half, um, you know, out of vengeance, etc. I've not seen it, so I don't know how well it deals with these ideas or if it's sort of like, you know, a lot of where it just wants to be edgy and like, look, isn't it cool that's like a super boy, like cutting people in half with laser eyes. Um, I feel like The Boys handles this very well, where it, it has that mm-hmm. graphic extreme violence. But there's a lot of very pointed social commentary and satire about the idea that you could have superheroes and what would happen in a massively capitalistic America yeah. if you had them, which is kind mm-hmm. of what we get. But not everybody yeah. deals with that very effectively. Yeah, and not every, no matter how brilliant your satire is, some people are going to take it literally. Some people think that. Homelander from the boys, uh, who is the awful, you know, awful, evil Superman. Some people think he's cool because, you know, he's uh, blonde and pretty and... uh... I mean, he is a handsome man. I'll give him that. (laughs) He is a handsome man, but But uh, evil, evil, evil. (laughs) He's a maladjusted man baby with abilities he shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. But that's like a problem, right? That like. Like, if you have somebody that is superpowered, don't isn't there now an ethical responsibility to sit down and say, we have to give them the firmest of ethical foundations? Because the power they have, you know, how do you take down a Homelander? Mm-hmm. It's not It's not like you can just, like, point a tank at it. Like, you know, Homelander could wipe out half the U.S. military, right? What is your plan well, you, you have to have that as your backup. This is what, like, you know, Marvel and even Batman have, which is what happens if the very powerful guy turns out not to be good. You have to have that mm-hmm. backup plan in place. But you still have to make sure we do everything we can to make to avoid that situation altogether. I mean, obviously, in The Boys, like, they, they don't have that plan because that was not the focus in the first place. But for other stories, you know, I find that would to be the more interesting question is how do you give Superman an ethical foundation and mm-hmm. one that can account for the fact that the world is not black and white. And sometimes the correct answer is still a bad choice because sometimes mm-hmm. it is, sometimes you can't save everybody. So who do you choose mm-hmm. in that situation? I mean, Superman can save more of them, but you know, he's not perfect man. He's just super. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I feel like we've kind of got it. You want to close this out? We could go on talking, I'm sure, for another half hour or hour, but uh, you need to rest your voice. And, yeah. Uh... <laughs> so anyway, for folks at home and here with us live, um, thanks again for being here. Uh, if you'd like to let us know what you thought about this episode or you want to send us some topics that we could cover in a future clacks, uh, you can go to skiffingfanny.com slash listener suggestions. Please do so. We're always happy to hear from folks. Um, it's lovely. Um, please subscribe and get the newsletter at skiffingfanny.com slash newsletter. 
And if you like what we do, uh, go to patreon.com slash and give us whatever you can give us. Even just a dollar is lovely. And then a five-star reviews on iTunes, Podchase, or any of those places. And just don't forget, we are on most of the socials. We are moving away from Twitter. Um, but find our link tree slash Skiffy and Fanty. Um, and, you know, find us in other places, Blue Sky and all those fancy places. Uh, me, I'm at SeanDuke.net. Alphabet streams on Twitch Tuesdays, Thursdays, 7 o'clock, unless I'm dying from a cold, which I am right now. Um, Patreon.com slash TheJoyFactory. And I'm also on Linktree, which is just slash Duke. You can find all my stuff there as well. And you can find me on Blue Sky uh, at uh, P.E. Matson on Mastodon, uh, newsy.social slash at Trishy M, and on my blog, which I have been updating more frequently lately, uh, at uh, what's the word now dot blogspot.com. And I've even been writing a few reviews for Skiffing and Fanty, so you can find me there too. Perfect. Okay, I'm, I'm trying not to sneeze right now. <laughs> sorry everybody i might have a cold so uh yeah i don't have anything really super off uh awkward to end this show on but um don't don't forget that uh, if you are sick take care of yourself mm-hmm. you know take your covid test make sure you don't have the covids i don't i did my tests made sure um you know use tissue hot showers often help you know get if your got vaccines get those vaccines yep definitely get those Flu season's on the way. Stuff and like the that. new COVID booster is out. Yep. More boosters. Get all the boosters. Stick yourself <laughs> with needles. Well, have <laughs> professionals stick you with needles, to be clear. Yeah, have professionals. the professionals do it, Yeah, please. yeah, not yourself. <laughs> Don't you stick yourself with random needles. That's not a good task. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, for folks at home, uh, I think we'll call that an awkward ending and scene. All right. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening.